Speaker Glenn Cassida formally steps down from his leadership position in a conversation about immigration and refugees in Tennessee. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of August 5th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. All right, we're going to go through a lot this episode. Uh, we've got a conversation with Stephanie Titro, a uh, co-executive director of the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition, as well as a recap of a conversation that Adam Tamborin had recently with former Governor Bill Haslam. But before we get to all that, we just wanted to do a quick recap of the news of the week, um, the biggest being uh, House Speaker Glenn Cassida is no longer serving in his leadership position, having resigned last week. He is no longer the speaker. He resigned effective August 2nd. That was his 60th birthday. Uh, you know, nothing really happened that day. From what I understand, he had already gotten all of his stuff out of his office. Um, and so essentially it was just on paper the last day, or I guess the day before that was the last day that he was Speaker of the House. And on Friday, Bill Dunn, he's currently the Speaker Pro Tem, uh, he effectively became the acting speaker, which will continue for the next three weeks until the August 23rd special session, at which time uh, current caucus chairman Cameron Sexton will be officially voted by the body as speaker. Of course, this kind of uh, Cassidy's departure, he's not leaving the legislature as a whole right now, at least that not that we know of. Um, but it does mark the end of a sort of tumultuous uh, seven-month period where he started as speaker in January and then uh, left after uh, a series of scandals involving himself, text messages, his former chief of staff, several uh, employees he hired, etc. cetera. Uh, these are all things that we are still kind of keeping an eye on and a grasp on. Uh, but for now, the House is trying to put it in the rearview mirror and focus on the future going forward. And, and speaking of the special session, uh, we have already seen resolutions being filed for that special session. Representative Gloria Johnson today on Monday just filed her resolution to expel Representative David Byrd. He is the legislator accused of sexually assaulting three women in the 1980s when they were teenagers. Uh, Representative Johnson had said that she would be filing this resolution. She previously tried to and was told by the clerk's office that she needed to wait until August 1st to do that for the special session. It's unclear uh, what kind of support she has in this effort to remove Byrd. Um, certainly, most Republican members have not been very vocal in saying anything in particular should happen to David Byrd. So it will be interesting to see what happens with this resolution. With us today is Adam Tamborin. He is our justice reporter who recently sat down with former Governor Bill Haslam for a conversation specifically about Centoya Brown um, regarding her upcoming release from prison. Adam, thanks for coming on. Sure. Thank you for having me. Adam, we wanted to have you on today because there was an interesting point of the conversation where the former governor talked about this list of people that uh, you and, and uh, our colleague Anita Wadwani reported on that were similar cases as Centoya Brown. So for, for listeners and readers that don't remember that, give a quick recap. Yeah. So Centoya Brown was put away uh, to, in prison 
for on a life sentence when she um, was a young um, woman for a crime that she committed as a juvenile. And when Governor Haslam in January announced that he was going to give her clemency, we wanted to look back and see how many other people like Centoya are there in the system. What we found at the time uh, was that there were 184 other people in Tennessee who are in prison on life sentences or life without parole sentences that they for crimes that they committed as juveniles, if that makes sense. So there are, the former governor referenced these, this idea of other Centoyas out there. Uh, and I think that's what we found is that uh, there are 184 other people in addition to Centoya who are in the same boat. And in this conversation, uh, the former governor talked about that list of people. Uh, here's a quick clip of the audio of him explaining uh, almost the regret that he wished yeah. he had more time. So you were saying um, it was a lot harder than you thought it was? All the decisions around pardons and commutations were way more difficult than I thought. Uh, you, you somehow think, well, I can get this right. I can balance uh, justice and mercy, and I, I'll figure out how to get it right, but it's a lot harder. And you made a good distinction to me when you said, uh, do you look at capital punishment cases different than you do everything else? And, and we did. Um, and. Uh, but regardless, whether it's capital cases or the others, uh, it was a, a lot more personally difficult. And I, I made a mistake as governor. I've told Governor Lee this. I held all those, the capital punishment decisions come to you when they come to you. But all the rest of them, uh, the request for pardons and uh, et cetera, uh, I had put off until the last six months. And my reasoning was, you know, I don't want everybody I see. It's surprising how many people you know who have a DUI in their past or got caught, you know, doing something they shouldn't have 20 years ago and they want their record clean. I thought, I don't, I don't want to deal with that for eight years, so I'll just put it off, do it the last six months. Well, um, there's a, two or three things that made that difficult. Number one, the, the sheer number of cases. Number two, that we had all those capital punishment cases that got pushed to my last six months just by the Supreme Court decisions. And then finally, uh, Centoya's case, which kind of, by the time it came to us, was in that same last uh, six months. So we spent a lot of time wrestling through those issues, particularly our last three or four months. And I'd say our last two months were almost, not dominated, but close to dominated by legal decisions. So um, what would you have done? What was your advice to Governor Lee? Well, mine was to not do what I did and put all, all of the, the decisions that you can make at any time off into the last six months. So I don't think you want to be doing it continuously, but decide some sort of regular schedule because, like I said, in your mind you think, I can do this. I can come up with a way to be uh, merciful and just at the same time. But it, it's really hard, and then you try, to, you try to get more information. And so it inevitably means doing a lot more digging than you think it is. And... Um, you know, the last six months, we'd sit down with our legal team, and they'd bring me a whole, you know, file of requests. And, um, you know, some are an easy one. No, we're not going to do that. Some are easy. Yes, yeah, we're, we're going to do that. But most of them were, we, we need to work on this one some more. So my point to Governor Lee uh, was, and obviously he can make his own decisions, but um, I did not make a great decision in putting those all until the end. Uh, you said it was harder than you thought. Why? Well, uh, you know, there, inevitably there's always 
multiple sides to a story. And so you hear uh, the person who's making the request claim, and then you do a little more digging and you hear maybe the, what the victims are uh, the victims of the crime are saying, or maybe what the, you, you run down the DA who was involved in prosecuting it and you hear the other side. And in most things, not all things, but in most things, there's another side to the story. Uh, and again, so somehow you have, I, at least I had this picture, like I, I can figure that out. I can figure out a way to be fair um, but also to be merciful and it's just it's hard uh, it's hard to get that right and um, mainly because you don't always have all the data and uh, other times like I said just because uh, as a friend of mine says even a pancake has two sides <laughs> you know there's a there's a lot of ways to, to understand the same event well so can, can you walk me through what that process is like and, and maybe um if, if you're comfortable, we could walk through it on the Centoya case. Sure. Um, so some of those are, are more, more low profile. Um, you know, it's somebody who got, um, you know, caught with marijuana 30 years ago, and it's a fairly clear-cut deal, and they, they just want their record clean. And then we would look, look and say, well, what's their life been like since then? Um, and has there been enough time that's passed? Um, and have they... You know, have they led, led an exemplary life since then? And that would heavily weigh on our on our uh, situation. We always try to find out, like I said, what the prosecutor had to say about it, what any victims that were still around that we could talk to had to say, and then to get some sense of why this person wanted it. I mean, some people just want their record cleared so they can, um, you know, apply for a different job or do do things. So part of it was tell me why this matters to you. So it had to it have the right uh, background since the event, and then it, there had to be a good reason to do it as well. So it seems like uh, Governor, former Governor Haslam uh, is, is wishing that he had begun a process of looking through these cases earlier. Um, he, he wished he had more time to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what he's going to be doing uh, to work with Bill Lee or advocate for a reexamination in other ways to try to see if he can help provide some kind of justice to other people like Centoya. Well, I think he, it's funny. He talked to me about I thought it was going to be easier. He thought he was going to be able to walk in there and, and really figure out what to do uh, in a very compressed period of time. He talked about not wanting this to be something that hung over uh, his entire term, this this idea of giving out pardons or clemency. So he um, intentionally left it to the, about the last six months of his term. And then when he got there, I think he saw kind of this huge backlog uh, that he wasn't able to review. He said, you know, if I could do it all over again, um, I would have maybe set up a review of these other hundred um, plus people who might be in Centoya's situation. And he told me he had expressed that regret to uh, Governor Lee uh, and encouraged Governor Lee to think about other ways to structure the way he doles out pardons and clemency. And I talked to Governor Lee's office, and they said, you know what, yes, Governor Lee will be thinking about pardons, thinking about clemency, thinking about mercy throughout his eight years, or I mean, at least four years uh, and potentially eight years in office. And when is Centoya Brown set to be released? So Centoya gets out of prison on August 7th. So that's Wednesday. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about the support that she's going to need on the other side uh, around um, 
around where she's going to live, what she's going to do for work, what she's going to do for money. I think a lot of people think that her case has shed light on this issue behind bars right now, but it now could also shed light on the issues, the difficulties that felons uh, encounter when they're transitioning out of life on what they call the inside uh, to life um, out in the world with the rest of us. And we saw some of that with Matthew Charles, too, when you know he, he was released from prison and he couldn't find a, a place to live. Um, both of these being cases where celebrities were involved. Which for every one of those, there are hundreds of right. people yeah, that absolutely. just are, are, are not known by other people. And so, yes, I think Centoya Brown's case along the whole spectrum has kind of shed a light on on these issues that face uh, nameless um, dozens or hundreds of people in the criminal justice system. I think the consensus is that Centoya, because of the publicity she's gotten, um, will have supports that other people might not. But um, there's some hope among the uh, advocate community that uh, her case will shed light on this idea that, yeah, if other people have the supports that Centoya will likely have, perhaps they'd be more successful. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on and recapping this. And we look forward to your continued coverage of the criminal justice system here in Tennessee. Thank you. Joining us today is Stephanie Tietro, co-executive director of the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking you about uh, sort of the, the the most newsy thing lately has been um, what happened in, in Hermitage right. uh, last month. Um, for, for those that may not recall, there was a um, uh, neighbors and activists got together, formed a human chain to essentially pre- prevent uh, ICE officers from um, detaining or apprehending a man and his son um, outside of a home in Hermitage. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a really remarkable story that has rightfully gotten a lot of national attention, certainly because of the role of the neighbors. These uh, folks had, had seen these kids grow up, had known this family for a long time, and were horrified at the idea that just one random morning that ICE agents could come and just rip the father away. Um, and so, yeah, you saw neighbors bringing sandwiches and water and doing everything they could to help the father be able to exercise his right, which was to not turn himself over to ICE, who had no judicial warrant. They had no authority to, to remove him from his car or from his family. So I think we learned, a, I mean, we learned a couple of things. One was, was that how important it is that immigrants know their rights. This dad knew exactly um, of what his rights were to stay in that car. We learned that Nashville don't the Chileans don't want to see their their neighbors ripped away. And third, it raised some incredibly important questions about the role of local law enforcement in assisting ICE and separating families here in Nashville. Well, and so Turk uh, in the last couple of months has been really teaching people in the community what the rights are, what their rights are. Yes. Uh, and I think that this is probably uh, to some people new, right? You come here mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily know. Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions. So what, what's sort of the basic pitch that you're telling people? Yeah, I mean, I think it is letting people know that they have the right, you know, not to let ICE in their house if they don't have a warrant. But I think it's important for people to not only know what those rights are, but be prepared to defend them. Because like we saw in Hermitage, ICE agents were um, trying to coerce um, the father. They said that the Metro Police Department would come and arrest them using all sorts of tactics of intimidation. So it's really quite remarkable that that 
that the father, under all of that pressure, um, defended his rights and his rights to stay in the car and to stay with his son. Of course, the uh, this latest effort came on top of last year's uh, raid in Bean Station uh, right. by ICE. What kind of effects do these, you know, instances of of, of ICE showing up at work, it's showing up at houses, have on on the immigrant community? I mean, the effects of this level of enforcement and this level of um, sort of unsuspecting enforcement that ICE could really show up anywhere is going to have lasting damage on an entire generation of children and on uh, the entire immigrant community. And I think where, you know, it shows up the most is, is complete distrust in accessing government institutions and fear of really participating in the community at all. We know people who are afraid to go to work, people who are afraid to drive their kids to school, people who are afraid to call the police if they're the victim or a witness to a crime. Um, people really don't know how any uh, routine encounter with local government and certainly with local law enforcement might land them in the deportation pipeline. Um, supporters often point to – supporters of, of, of the raids often point to the need for things like uh, comprehensive immigration reform and they'll say, hey, you know, we need to build the wall. Um, what, what sort of position does Turk have on either comprehensive uh, immigration reform or, or you know, anything like uh, building the wall? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly a huge question. And we would be the first to say that our current immigration laws are completely outdated and are incredibly harmful, not only to immigrant communities, but to our country as a whole. And, uh, and for many, many years have been advocating that they be changed. But I think for some people, they believe that we have a set of fundamentally good laws that bad people are breaking. Uh, but we would argue that we actually have horrible laws that haven't been updated in 30 years. Think about how much the world has changed and our immigration policies have not. So we believe we have these very bad laws that are actually hurting good people. And so while we do need to uh, increase the opportunities for my for people to migrate here lawfully. We have many, um, many fixes to the system. We also believe that in the meantime, while our country is debating the kind of immigration system we have, we must enforce our immigration laws in a way that upholds and reflects our values and conducting early morning raids at workplaces and at homes. Uh, it, it, it's not a reflection of our values and it, it harms our community even further. Last week, Nashville had its mayoral election. Uh, in the lead up to that, Turk hosted a forum of mayoral candidates, at-large candidates. Right. What's kind of thinking? Why did you guys want to do that? And, and what was the reception? Yeah, well, for us, we think, you know, although immigration is fundamentally a federal issue, who gets to come in this country, who gets to stay, we believe that it's at the local level where the impacts of immigration are most deeply felt and that cities are really on the front lines, especially in the Trump era, of defending our values and implementing policies um, that, that can build the kind of community that we all deserve. And so we have high expectations expectations for the next city council and the next mayor to really protect immigrant communities, to make sure we're not helping ICE uh, deport our neighbors and really invest in the success of immigrant families and working families across the county. At the same time, what can the cities do when you have a legislature that is often saying, hey, you need to do this uh, last year? What was the bill again? The, uh, prohibiting essentially yes. sanctuary cities. 
Um, what what can the cities do in response to some of those positions by our state lawmakers? Yeah, so we get questions all the time about what the city of Nashville should do. So over uh, the summer, we actually surveyed 5,000 immigrants and refugees and engaged uh, 40 partner organizations and developed a blueprint for the next government of Nashville called um, Beyond Welcoming that lays out uh, 20 pages worth of concrete steps that the city could take to, again, protect and invest in immigrant communities. And again, what we saw in Hermitage is a really clear example of why we need policies, certainly in the police department, but across the city, uh, that make it clear what we're, what we're willing and not willing to do when it comes to immigration enforcement. So I wanted to turn to uh, the refugee community because uh, that's also a significant portion of mm-hmm. what, what Turk does. Um, for those that may not know, what are some of the numbers behind, uh, you know, the financial benefits of, of refugees in Tennessee? Yeah, refugees have been uh, resettled in Tennessee increasingly in the last couple of decades. Uh, the resettlement program is has always been considered sort of the highest expression of our aspirations as a country for people who are fleeing war and persecution, that they can find safety here and that they can have the opportunity opportunity and support to rebuild their lives here. And it has been incredibly successful. We've seen uh, in study after study um, that the refugee resettlement program helps not only the individual families um, to find safety and success, but also that refugees are contributing uh, extraordinarily to to the economies and to the cultural vibrancy of the communities where they resettle. There's been uh, reports of the president possibly reducing the refugee resettlement program to next to nothing. Right. Um, what kind of impact would that have on Tennessee? How many how many do we take right now? So since he was elected, Trump has really been gutting the refugee resettlement program. And so in Obama's last year in office, he had set the number of refugees that we would resettle to about 110,000. And so in that That's nationwide. nationwide. And mm-hmm. so we were roughly resettling about 1,600 refugees across the state of Tennessee, largely in Nashville, each year. Now... Uh, in this fiscal year, which will end in October, we've resettled less than 500 refugees in Tennessee. And so the impacts are great. Not only is it that individual refugees who are here who still have family stuck in refugee camps or in the pipeline uh, who, are, who are separated from their families. Um, of course, World Relief Nashville, who had, had been resettling refugees and supporting the community for 30 years here, shut their doors. And so not only is the threat that we are closing our doors on people fleeing violence, but we're actually seeing a total decimation of the infrastructure we have here to welcome and support refugees that will really take decades to rebuild. Hmm. Of course, Tennessee recently had its federal lawsuit over refugee resettlement dismissed by a uh, an appeals court. It's unclear whether they're going to uh, pursue this at the Supreme Court level. But y- y- are you hopeful that the, the dismissal of this case settles the matter? Or do you think that uh, you know, refugees are, are still going to be kind of a political football here in Tennessee. I mean, I don't think we're under any illusion that the conversation is going to go away. From the very beginning, we knew and, and many legislators knew that this lawsuit was doomed to fail. That's why Governor Haslam refused to sign the legislation that initiated the lawsuit. That's why our attorney general refused to take the case. But introducing this, this idea um, in, in the case of the lawsuit that 
refugees are too much of a, a burden and that state shouldn't be required to resettle them. That's a really dangerous idea. Right. And that idea, um, regardless of what happens in the Supreme Court or the appeal or no matter how many times the suit is dismissed, it keeps it in the public discord um, that that maybe we should be second guessing our commitment to refugees or the role that they play in our community. Uh, and that has always been what's been more deeply troubling to us. Last time you were on, uh, you reminded me that I asked you how you graded Governor Haslam, former Governor Haslam, on uh, immigration and refugees. How would you grade uh, the new governor so far on these issues? Well, I mean, I think we're eager to further engage his office and help make sure he understands the incredible diversity uh, and contributions of immigrants and refugees in Tennessee and really understands that the success of Tennessee depends on the success of all of its residents. And so we were deeply troubled that his signature education proposal, the voucher bill, uh, included a provision that would exclude uh, many immigrant families from participating. And so the seeming willingness to to discard uh, the futures and opportunities for, for immigrant families, I think, is... is uh, is a troubling sign. Um, but as you know, we are always optimistic that lawmakers who meet immigrant constituents who learn more about the issues um, can change their mind on the issues. And we saw that with Governor Haslam uh, previously. And so we hope that that Governor Bill Lee will also have an open mind to learning more about, um, about the role of immigrants in Tennessee. Well, thanks for stopping by and discussing this. Thank you. In this week's notebook dump, there are three candidates in the race for caucus chairman. That is the position that Cameron Sexton currently holds, but it will be vacated when he becomes speaker. Uh, Most recently, Jerry Sexton, he is a Republican from Bean Station, jumped into the race joining representatives Jeremy Faison and Michael Curcio. This week, the National Conference of State Legislatures is in Nashville. It's an annual conference where lawmakers from across the country gather, as well as staffers, to hear about different ideas uh, and have panels. There are also uh, outings that these members will go out on, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, lobbyist-funded events. Um, But Nashville will be well represented by members of the state legislature. And Governor Bill Lee says that he is not deterred by opposition from the House and moving forward early on the school voucher legislation. Uh, Bill Lee said last week that he planned to still go forward as soon as possible with getting the education savings account program off the ground and running, most likely a year before the administration previously said it would be. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. We will, of course, be back next week at our usual time. You can find us every Tuesday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, This episode has been produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Feel free to reach out to us via email or on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Please continue to send any uh, political jingles you may find. We haven't gotten many yet, so please uh, send those to us whenever you do get them. Uh, As always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.